If you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, and let's pray together. Father, open our eyes, open our hearts, and make us attentive to your voice. And in attending to your voice, would you change us and mold us and shape us and address us and encourage us and challenge us and nourish us and sustain us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. So in the New York Times bestseller, Lost Connection, Why You Are Depressed and What You Can Do About It, uh, the author, Johan Hari, uh, tells a story about a psychiatrist whose name is Dr. David Summerfield. Now, a little word on this book. This book, uh, kind of the point is, is to argue, his, his thesis really, is that depression in our country oftentimes is looked at in a very reductionistic sort of way. It's seen primarily as a matter of uh, bad you know, biochemistry and therefore the, the response should be medication. And he argues in this book that medication, of course, is sometimes important and good and can be very, very helpful for people. But he says that depression is, uh, there, there's multiple causes of depression and therefore, when you think about diagnosing and, and creating solutions for it, you need to think a multidisciplinary approach. So anyway, that's kind of the, the uh, argument in the book, but he, he tells the story of South African psychiatrist David Summerfield, who was in Cambodia in 2001 when they introduced antidepressants for the very first time. And the Cambodian doctors had never heard of these drugs, and so they're like, what is this? And he explained, and they said, well, we don't need them. We already have antidepressants. And the doctor was a little bit confused, and he thought maybe they meant some of those herbal remedies like ginkgo biloba or St. John's wort or something like that. And, um, uh, but, but, but then, instead, they told them this story. They said there was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields, and one day, he stepped on a landmine that was left over from the war and he got his leg blown off and so they gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the rice fields. Now, apparently it's super painful to work uh, with a artificial limb in water and also I'm sure it was pretty traumatic for him to go back to work in the very same place where he had had his leg blown off and so this guy who had this experience, he just started to cry all day long, he wouldn't get out of bed, and he was experiencing all of the classic symptoms of clinical depression. And the Cambodian doctor said, uh, so, so he said, we heard this and we gave this man an antidepressant. And they said, well, what, what was your antidepressant? And they said, well, we sat with him, we listened to him, and they realized that his pain made sense given his situation. There was perfectly understandable causes in his life. And one of the doctors in the community said, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer and he wouldn't have to work in the rice fields that are causing him so much physical and emotional pain. And so they did that. The community pooled together and they bought him a cow. And within a couple of weeks, this guy had stopped crying. And he, within a month, his depression was totally gone. And they said, you see, doctor, the cow was an antidepressant, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> and um, now, of course, that sounds maybe to us like something of a bad joke. You know, I went to see a doctor for my depression, and she, dis she prescribed a cow for me for my healing, and it just doesn't help, you know. But, but what they're getting at is simply that there are different reasons why we might feel the way we feel. 
And he, he draws upon the World Health Organization and massive research and study, and they've said, look, um, people you know, who are depressed, he says, it's typically not a problem in their neurochemistry. He said, it's just that we're humans, and we as humans have a variety of different needs. You have a need for belonging. You have a need for people to love you and to attend to you and to listen to you. You have a need for meaning and significance in community. And if you have needs that are unmet, then oftentimes the result is depression. And very often the reason why there is so much depression in the culture we inhabit and a growing number of it is because our culture is so bad at meeting those absolute basic needs. Now this morning we're going to be turning back to an ancient resource to think through this issue of depression. Now what we're going to look at is not the only word there is to say about the problem of depression, uh, and, and it's certainly by no means to say that modern medications and things like that are not helpful and good at times for people who are depressed. No shame here. If that's you, God bless you. You know, whatever helps, you know, appeal to that. But what's interesting is in our story that we're looking at today, Elijah is dealing with the problem of depression. He is absolutely despondent. He is crushed. He is ready to give up his life. And it's in this place that God meets him and takes him to a different place. And we're going to see, you know, in our text, God doesn't prescribe to him some cows, uh, but he does meet him with some anti-depressions. And I want to uh, show you how God meets him in this depressed state. And, and, you know, maybe some of you are in a place right now where you have wrestled with depression and feeling low. And I just hope and pray that you might find yourself addressed by God as we walk through the story. The story begins like this. And so Ahab tell, Je, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servants there. And so when we pick up the story, Elijah his life is now being hunted. And of course, this just comes on the heel of Elijah's greatest success, uh, his, his, his biggest moment in his career. You know, he, he prayed to God, called down fire from heaven, and he impressed, you know, all of uh, the people of Israel. And, and the people said, the Lord, he is God. But now just days after this, what's going on? Well, the people still have not turned and now Elijah's life is in danger. He's become public enemy number one. And Jezebel, who's the queen in Israel, and really Jezebel is pulling the strings of the puppet king, that is Ahab. And Jezebel's intention is to wipe out all the prophets of God and to establish Baal worship as the worship in the northern kingdom. And so she's hunting down Elijah. And so Elijah, he, he's discouraged, he's depressed. He's wondering, like, I did everything I knew to do, and still the people have not turned. And now my life is under threat. And so he, he, he does what many of us would do. He's freaked out, and he runs across the border. And he goes down into the friendly territory of the southern kingdom of Judah, where he can find shelter and refuge from the sword of Jezebel. And look what happens next. He was afraid he went down to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and it says that he left his servant there. And I think what this indicates is that Elijah at this point is giving up. 
And his servants, you know, he wasn't like a wealthy person. He didn't have a servant alongside of him to meet all of his needs. This was his staff, as it were. This is like the pastoral staff team. And Elijah is like, I'm done. So, son, you can, you can go back to Beersheba. And then Elijah leaves to be by himself. And I think at this point, Elijah is just giving up. And look what it says next. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And so he goes into the wilderness where it is barren and resources are thin, and he sits under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You know, Elijah, of course, is known in the New Testament as the model of prayer. But here, when Elijah prays, what is he asking God to do? He's asking that God would take his life away. You know, have you ever felt like it might be easier to die than to have to walk through the valley you're going through? Have you, ever, have you ever been so deep in a pit? Have you ever found yourself in that dark night of your soul that you just feel like it would be easier not even to be living? And this is Elijah. And the text tells us that he's in the wilderness and under a broom tree and feeling so depressed and isolated. And I saw this image uh, this week and I thought this captured it so well. And you know, his physical location being barren and lifeless. There's no fertility around, nothing to generate life and wellness and wholeness and well-being that is all around him in the, in the desert is a picture of the state of his soul. This is how he's feeling, and he's hopeless. And why wouldn't he feel that way? I mean, he does feel like a failure because his ministry has yielded nothing. You know, have you ever been working hard? And maybe you've been working as a parent, maybe in some ministry, maybe in some calling, and you just feel like, my efforts have been fruitless. It hasn't gone anywhere. And this is how Elijah feels. And he's despondent. And he's questioning whether or not he should even be alive. And he's just in this state of depression. Now, let's just pause and let's just make this observation. If Elijah, who is the man of God, the prophet of God, the one who has taken such great risks for God, is suffering from depression, then it means that godly, faithful people can suffer from depression. Or we could just put it like this. Listen, godly people, faithful people, people who pray and live well and take risks for God can get deeply depressed. And, you know, sometimes this needs to be said in a church context because, you know, we talk about the importance of joy in the Christian life. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. And, of course, that's true. You should rejoice. But what if you're not? What if you're not feeling that? Then what? Does it mean there's something wrong with you? And there can be shame and depression in the church. And can I just normalize depression here for a minute? Can I just say that servants of God, prophets of God, godly men and women have struggled with depression. And so if you're there, you are not alone. And, you know, I know sometimes in, in, in our churches, and I, I experienced this growing up, um, I grew up in, you know, a family with our, the matriarch of the family was Grandma Thea, and Grandma Thea's mantra to the whole family was, be happy. And she had a big sign in her house that said, be happy. And when we would walk into Grandma's house, she would always ask us the first question, are you happy? 
you know, and, and that was great. And grandma did bring a lot of joy and happiness, you know, but what the, the message can be communicated, and some of you have heard this, is it's not okay to not be okay. And if you're not happy, that's not okay. And I need you to be happy, so can we at least pretend? But godly people, faithful people, people who pray and live well and take risks can get deeply depressed. This is where Elijah was at, and this is the place where God meets Elijah, and he takes him somewhere else. And I want you to see how God meets Elijah. This is great. Um, when when God, God meets him by first sending an angel, look at the text, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Am I the only one that when I, raise, when I read an angel touched him? I'm a child of the 80s. My mind is drawn back to Michael Landon. Come on, touched by an angel. You know, here Elijah is touched by an angel. I'm sorry. So Elijah is touched by an angel. And the angel says, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. I read that a cake baked on hot stones, and I thought that would be an excellent technical challenge for the Great British Bake Off. You know, I can imagine Paul issuing this one. Try baking a cake on hot stones. Don't you watch? Anyway, all right. And a jar of water, and he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. Listen, what does God do for Elijah when he is depressed? He sends an angel, and when the angel comes, what does the angel say? Does the angel say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy? Does the angel come and rebuke him? Does the angel come and say, bad prophet, you should rejoice? Listen, the angel doesn't do any of those things. You know what the angel does? The angel cooks the prophet a meal. He bakes a cake for the prophet. And isn't that interesting? You know, sometimes we can be more spiritual than God. And we can act as if, you know, if, if, if we're spiritual people, you know, you got to focus on God and pray. You know, the answer is prayer. And listen, when you're depressed, when you're sad, prayer is great. But that's not the first thing Elijah is asked to do. He's not given a Bible pill or a Bible verse to memorize. Instead, he says, eat and get some sleep. He says, take care of your physical needs. You know, I was, uh, I was in a class uh, called Spirituality and Ministry about a little over 10 years ago up here at Mater de la Rosa, and we were there to study underneath that great spiritual luminary, Dallas Willard, just the last year before he died. And if you don't know who Dallas is, he's one of the fountainheads of the modern spiritual formation movement, and he is the closest thing that the you know, Protestant evangelical world has had to a saint in the last you know, 30 years. And so preparing for this class, we read 3,000 pages of desert fathers and stuff about spiritual disciplines and monastic orders and all this stuff. And we're all preparing for, you know, this class with Dallas Willard, who's going to immerse us in the disciplines. And, you know, we got there in the first assignment Dallas gave to those of us in the room, most of us senior pastors. He said, the first thing I want to ask you to do, the first requirement you have for this class is the first five nights of this two-week class, you are required to stay in bed at least 10 hours a night. 
And he acknowledged that for most of us, this was gonna be a struggle because we are high energy people and we need to keep going. And he's like, stay in bed and sleep. And then he said this, one of the most important spiritual activities is getting adequate sleep. So if we really intend to submit our bodies as living sacrifices to God, our first step might well be to start getting enough sleep. Some of you came to church this morning to hear that. Sleep is a good first use of solitude and silence. It is also a good indicator of how thoroughly we trust in God. Why? Well, because if you stop working and you allow your mind to stop working just for five, you're afraid the world's going to fall apart. No, it's not. God is running the universe just fine without you. He was here before you got here. He will be gone long, he'll be here long after you're gone. And the universe will keep spinning even when you go to sleep. You know, if our bodies are going to be whole and well, or if our soul is going to be whole and well, oftentimes it means to attend to the wholeness and the wellness of our physical bodies. Listen, I know for, for some of you, this doesn't sound like that spiritual advice. You know, you're feeling depressed, and I start asking you, what is your diet like? What are your sleep patterns? And listen, some of you college students need to be asked that. What are your sleep patterns? Uh, what is your diet like? How erratic is your sleep? You know, you keep falling out of your circadian rhythms like that. You know, you can start feeling depressed. You keep filling your body with that kind of sugar and that much caffeine, and you're going to crash. And there's a reason why you feel the way you do. So maybe for some of us, the first step to wellness is to attend to our physical bodies. And for Elijah, that was his first step. He says, eat and sleep. He says, attend to your physical bodies. But Elijah, this is just the first step. He is still in a pit of darkness. And so look what it says. By the way, the food and drink seem to do pretty well because look, he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. That must have been some nutritious energy. That was like some power bars, right? Some high energy food. It was angel food. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, come on. Thanks, bro. <laughs> Appreciate that. He goes in the strength of for 40 days, 40 nights, and he goes to Horeb to the mountain of God. Horeb, the mountain of God. He's fed and he's satiated with what now he goes to the mountain of God, Horeb. Another word for Horeb is Mount Sinai. And why does he go to Mount Sinai? Well, I suggest because it was at Mount Sinai that the most profound encounter with God in the entire Old Testament occurs. It is where Moses goes up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, even as Elijah travels for 40 days and 40 nights. And Moses goes up, and there God passes by, and he speaks his glory, and, he, and, and Moses gets just a glimpse of the glory of God. And I think Elijah goes to Mount Horeb because he knows he needs something more than food and drink and a good night's rest. He, need, he needs a transcendent encounter with the divine. He needs to meet God. But when he gets there, interestingly, the first thing he does is he goes into a cave. Look at what it says. And there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. I saw this image of uh, Elijah in the cave, and I thought it was so appropriate. And just note, the cave as a physical space 
Why do you go in a cave? Well, it's a place first of protection, right? It protects you from being vulnerable to anything external to you. You hide in that cave. A cave is also a place for Elijah of isolation where he is by himself, and it's a place of darkness. And maybe he goes into that cave as a physical space to reflect something of the emotional place that he finds himself. He is still in the darkness. He still feels isolated and alone. He still feels like a failure stuck in the darkness. And he is hiding maybe within the shell of himself to prevent himself from being vulnerable with all of this pain. And he goes into the cave and he lodged in it. And behold, there in the cave, the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't it interesting, when God finally speaks, he doesn't give an answer, but he raises a question. A good therapist knows that sometimes what you most need is not more answers, but they need to ask more questions that will draw you out. Now, why is God raising this question? Where, what, what are you doing, Elijah? Listen, God is not asking this question to gain more information. He's not like, Elijah, what are you doing here? I had no idea you were going to show up on my mountain, you know? This is the mountain of God. No, he, he, he's not getting more information. The question is not for God. The question is for Elijah to draw him out. And it's almost as if Elijah was, has just been waiting for someone to ask him this question. And sometimes you have been there. You've got stuff inside, and it seems like people are always coming to you with answers, they're always speaking more truth at you, sending you another podcast, giving you another lecture, giving you another sermon to listen to. And you're like, would you just ask me a question? Would you just start opening me up and allow me to say something? And God sees Elijah and he asks this question, what are you doing here? And Elijah's been waiting for this and he just turns and he says, I'm glad you asked. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek to my life to take it away. The Hebrew, that first line, it says, you know, where it says, I am very jealous. The Hebrew is, I am jealous, jealous. I am doubly zealous for you, God. And the implication is, is that people that have been as zealous and faithful and as good of a prophet as I have been shouldn't feel like this, shouldn't be experiencing this. Something is wrong. And there's a note of self-righteousness and self-pity there too, right? I, I am the only one left. I mean, have you been there? You just feel like... I, Somebody who, is, who, is, who has been as faithful as I have, who has practiced these kind of spiritual disciplines, who has gone to church and tithed regularly and tried to raise my family the way I ought to and tried to live, the, why do I experience what I'm experiencing? This is not right. And this is Elijah. And he voices that pain. He voices his heartache. And listen to God's response. God responds Again, not with an answer, but with an invitation. And he says this, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. 
There's mystery. He doesn't even know what he's being invited into. And what happens next is enigmatic and it is full of mystery and beauty and wonder. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. It's interesting, the Hebrew is a, is a paradox and it, and, and this is very difficult to translate. And if you open up a variety of different English Bibles, there's a variety of different ways in which this is translated here. It's called the sound of a low whisper. In another version, it's called the sound of sheer silence. But it brings together these two words, a Hebrew word that means it, it implies something that's audible, it can be heard. But then the next word is silence, which to our ears cannot be heard. And you get the sense that he's trying to name, he's trying to describe the indescribable. Namely, that stable, holy, quiet presence of God. That for Elijah, after the earthquake, and after the wind, and after the storm, all of this commotion outside, it goes quiet. And he can feel it. And he walks out into the very presence of God. And in that presence, a voice speaks again, and again, it's not an answer. Again, it's a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away is anybody having deja vu at this moment? Didn't we already hear this? Sometimes it's not enough to voice your pain once. Sometimes you need to go back and say it again. And God asks not once but twice, what are you doing here? And I think the twofold question is intended to draw Elijah out. Elijah, we don't need to be a nice ancient prophet who always says the right thing in this moment. Elijah, you can put aside your churchy image for a minute and just voice that pain and that disappointment and that heartache you're feeling inside. And then the, all of the, the earthquake and the, the wind and the storm. And it's interesting, you know, oftentimes much is made of this silent, still voice and I've heard sermons on this text where people talk about how to hear the voice of God, and it's not heard in the earthquake or the wind in the fire, it's heard in that small, gentle voice. And there's something probably to that, but I don't think it's the point of this text. Interestingly, the ancient readers would know that God did often appear in the earthquake, like he did for Israel at Sinai. The earth shook and God descended. And God did appear in the whirlwind like he did for Job when he confronted him. And God did appear in fire like he did for the Israelites at night in a pillar of fire by night. And God did appear to Moses in a burning bush in fire. God 
you know, it, what's, not, what's, what's surprising is not that God is not in the fire or in the earthquake or in the wind. What's surprising in the text for the ancient readers is where God shows up. He shows up in the palpable silence. The silence like a parent that maybe you wish you had or you did have at that moment that just quieted themselves and drew you out and attuned their ear to hear your heart. In the silence, it's as if God is saying, I am here and I am ready to listen. And I think all of the commotion, Elijah's hiding back in the cave and then he comes out of the cave and the question draws him out of himself and he speaks again. And I think God is doing at least two things or three things in this moment. I think in this moment, number one, he is drawing Elijah out of the cave. Not the physical cave. He's drawing him out of his own dark, isolated, self-pitying place. And he's saying, speak with vulnerability about what's really going on inside. I wonder when the last time you voiced with absolute vulnerability and honesty your disappointment, your heartache, and your pain in the presence of God. I wonder when the last time you voiced your pain and your heartache and your disappointments and your failure in the presence of one of God's people, somebody you trusted that was safe. Listen, too many of us are sick inside because we have not had space to voice our pain. And when you voice that pain, you know, it's gonna make you sick. I mean, when you, when you stuff that pain, it's gonna make you sick. It's kind of like when you get food poisoning. When you get food poisoning, I mean, what's the best thing you're, you need to do in that moment? You need to start vomiting all of that junk up. And some of you have pain and trauma and heartache and disappointment and failure, and you've been bearing it down. And you know, because you're not taking it to God, you are taking it out on other people. And we don't know why it feels like we're walking on eggshells around you. We don't know why you're on edge. We don't know what's really going on because you haven't said what's going on. And what God does is he invites Elijah in this moment to come out In this moment, God is creating space for Elijah to safely speak his pain. May God make this a church where it is safe to voice our honest, raw pain, even when it's uncomfortable for other people to hear. He's drawing Elijah out of the cave, but I think he's doing something else. He's drawing him out. He's saying, voice your pain, but he's also saying, Elijah, when you voice your pain, I am here, I am attuned, I am listening. You know, the best of neuropsychology is telling us right now that one of the most important ways that we find healing from our deep trauma in the past is when we can voice that pain in the presence of an attuned listener. Someone who will hold our pain and will listen and enter empathetically with us there. And I think in this ancient prophet, what we're seeing is God is saying, come out and voice that pain and I am attuned, I am listening, I am here. You know, when I was 19 years old, um, you know, I've never felt much like a charismatic Pentecostal type. 
You know, I know there's a lot, some of you guys are like this. It seems like God is always speaking to you. You know, God told me yesterday. I'm like, what, what do you mean he told you yesterday? He just called you on the phone and talked to you, you know? I, I've never been that, that type, but I do have a profound memory from when I was 19 years old, and I was in the midst of kind of a desert season in my life, and I had had a really kind of vibrant, sort of like spiritual awakening, and always feeling God, and then I just went into this valley. And I distinctly remember one morning being in prayer and feeling like it's been a long time, and just hearing God speak and saying, I am here, and I have always been here. Even on those days when it felt like I was not there, I was there. I have always been here. And I think maybe what God is saying in the silence, what the peaceable, stable presence of God, that palpable presence of God is saying is, I am here, Elisha. I am here with you in the cave. I have always been with you. And I am attentive to your voice. You know, in this moment, Elijah had no idea the lengths to which God would go to communicate to us that he would be with us in the cave, in those dark times where it feels like God is not moving, nothing's happening, failure, disappointment. Because echoing down the corridors of the human history is this cave, and ultimately, after Friday when Jesus died, they would take his now dead body and they would place it in the tomb. And on Saturday, the dead body of Jesus would lie unmoved in that tomb. The day of disappointment, the day the world ended, the day when it seemed like everything was falling apart. Where is God? God is right there in the middle of his creation, suffering alongside of his people. God has always been there. His presence is with you even now. So he's saying to Elijah, I am here, I am listening, voice your pain. But he does something else in this passage, and this, this, this sort of is a little bit jarring because up to this point, it all feels so comforting, empathetic. He enters in and I'm with you in your pain. But next, he speaks a word to Elisha. You know, it, it's true. Elijah has had some things he's needed to voice. There's stuff Elijah's needed to say. But in this moment, after Elijah speaks his truth and voices his pain, God has something to say. And listen to what God does. He challenges Elijah, and look what he says. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Molech, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. What is he doing? He's putting him back on mission. He's saying, I, you've, you've tendered your resignation, Elijah. I've not accepted it. You need to go back to work. He says, go. And, and then he says, I want you to go and anoint. When you go, I want you to go back to that dangerous land of Israel, the place of risk and vulnerability. And I want you to anoint Jehu, 
the son of Nimshi as king in place of who? Ahab. Now, if Jezebel didn't like Elijah before, how do you think she's going to like him now that he anoints another king in the place of her husband, the puppet king, Ahab? Class, not good. But he goes on, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu be put to death. He puts him on notice that violence is going to attend your future. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet, he says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And do you see what he's doing in this moment? God is doing at least two things to Elijah, and I think maybe for some of you, maybe this will just nick the corner of your heart of where you're at. Maybe he wants to do this to you this morning. Number one, what God does is he challenges Elijah's false narrative. You know, very often when you are in a dark place, part of what pins you down in that place is the story you keep telling that you're alone, nobody understands, everyone's done you wrong, and you're there simply with the voices in your own head. You know, that pastor down in the South, Tony Evans, put it like this, I love this. He said, if you're feeling sorry for yourself and you're talking to yourself about yourself, that's a bad conversation for yourself. Can I get a witness? Anyone in the house had a bad conversation with yourself? And you're speaking a false narrative. And maybe it's the narrative you heard growing up, ugly, failure, worthless, meaningless. And here God says, good news, Elijah, you are wrong. Some of the best news you will ever hear is that your narrative you've spoken of yourself is wrong. And God says to Elisha, you are wrong. You are not alone. I have 7,000 people that have not bowed their knee to Baal. You think you're alone, you are not. In fact, in this text, he says, I have uh, reserved or I have, um, uh, I have, the the Hebrew can be translated, I have provided 7,000 prophets for myself who have not bowed their knee. And you know what he's saying, I think? Elijah, I have provided you a community so you don't need to be alone. Friends, some of you came to church this morning just to hear that God has provided you a community so that you don't need to be alone. And I've been a pastor long enough to know that whatever heartache you're going through right now that you think is so unique to you, you think you're the only one, you even feel ashamed about it, you're not alone. There is so much junk and darkness and pain and heartache in this room. And if we would just voice it to each other, we might find that we have companions in our suffering. And if we voice it to God, naturally we find a companion in our suffering, in the suffering Jesus. So he challenges his false narrative. He says, look, you're wrong. And then he calls them back into mission. Go back to Israel, to the place of risk, to the place of challenge. It's as if he's saying, look, Elijah, I know, sometimes there, there, there was a time, there was a day for Beersheba to go into the safety of Judah. There is a day to eat freshly baked bread over those hot stones. There is a time for isolation and silence and solitude in a cave. There is a time for that, but now is not that time. Now is the time for you to go. I've got work for you to do. Get up and go. 
And friends, this maybe is not the word Elijah wanted to hear, but it is the word he needed to hear. You know, the last couple of years have been far and away the most difficult two years of my own time in ministry. You know, it's COVID and all that stuff. And, um, you know, uh, I, 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 several months ago, I, I took a, a vacation uh, to northern Baja to a little place called K38, which is a right-hand surf point break. Okay, come on. And uh, 38 kilometers, it's, it's just gorgeous. It's on a cliff. I was sitting in a hotel room, big glass windows overlooking this beautiful right point break, perfect surf out. And I was just thinking to myself, oh, what, I just, can I just stop being a pastor and just live here for the rest of my life and just surf every day? That's what God said. <laughs> He's like, no, you can't. And maybe in your despair and in your, you think what I need is just an eternal vacation, just to get away from all of these people. But maybe you don't. It's interesting to me that God's response to Elijah's despair over his call and his mission is to call him into a deeper, more risky engagement in his call and in his mission. Isn't that interesting? And I just find it kind of interesting because it's so shocking. Get back to work. You know, one of, one of the points that uh, Johan Hari made in that book I referenced at the beginning is that very often, one of the reasons why people are in despair is because they believe that life is meaningless. And why wouldn't you think that life is meaningless if you thought that all you had to do with your days is to buy more products, display them on social media, and hopefully get a little hashtag OMG jealous? Like, or watch another, binge another Netflix. It's like, can life have any more meaning than that? Yes. God has raised Jesus from the dead. The kingdom of God has broken into this world. The spirit of God is on the move and you have a role to play in this mission. There are children that need parents. There are students on your campus that need a friend and a listening ear. There are neighbors on your street that need to know about Jesus. There are students in your classroom that need passionate, committed teachers. There are people on the streets in, in downtown Los Angeles that need Tim Peters down there working at the Union Rescue Mission. There is a call that God has placed on your life. There is a meaning, there is a purpose in this world. God is on the move. He invites you to join him. Now listen, let me close with this. I don't know what you need to hear this morning. And I don't know where you're at this morning. Some of you are great, depression, you're like, thank God that's not the message I need to hear today. Just hold on, maybe come back to the, well, it'll be recorded. <laughs> I don't know if what you need most is a good meal and a good night of sleep. Or maybe you just need a space to voice your pain with a therapist or with a pastor or with a friend or with God, hopefully. Or you need to be recommissioned, get up and go. I don't know what you need most right now, but I know this. I know that God has provided for you. 
He provided for Elijah 7,000 friends who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. And God has provided for you. He has provided for you life and healing and forgiveness and love. God has given a community around you. God has provided for you. And you can lean into that provision. And in leaning in, maybe experience something of God's joy breaking into your own dark place.